On this week's Flyover Country podcast, a great guest from the National Journal, Josh Krauschauer, author of the Against the Grain column and podcast. Hear the eye-opening answer to the question of whether Biden or Harris will be the Democratic nominee in 2024. Hear Josh's analysis from the Virginia governor's race about how Glenn Youngkin's victory may set the stage for Republicans to win in 22 and in 24, and find out why Josh wants to punt Peppa Pig into the sun. All of that and a ton more. This week's Flyover Country podcast with Scott Jennings starts now. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Hey, thanks for listening to the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Appreciate you being with us today. And we are honored to have with us one of the greatest journalists in Washington, D.C., covering the political scene, someone I've known and followed for uh, many years and I think often is on the leading edge of picking up uh, trend lines in American politics. It is Josh Krauschar, the managing editor uh, of the political coverage of National Journal. I've known Josh uh, for a long time, back in his uh, Politico days and his hotline days. Um, and uh, we've been uh, we've been communicating about uh, what's going on in politics for for many, many years. And I think what I admire most about Josh, and we'll talk about this today, is his willingness to uh, not give in to the uh, Washington, D.C. journalism bubble narratives that often form, uh, which uh, it seems to us out here, Josh and Flyover Country often uh, sort of mandate that everybody who's in the business sort of get on the same narrative about a race or about a political situation and not deviate. And you often, I think, uh, I think are willing to uh, go outside of that that group think and and proffer some other theories about what happened and and maybe that's where we'll start uh, on this Virginia governor's race. It seems to me that you were one of the first people that picked up on the progressive left wing lurch of the Democrats hurting in Virginia, and you've written about that in your postmortem on the Virginia governor's race. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. And again, thanks for being with us. So thanks, Scott, and and I want to. Uh, also say thanks for having me on one of the, the the early episodes of Flyover Country. I always enjoy watching your analysis, independent analysis uh, on CNN. So it's great to, to be on the show. You know, look, I, I wrote about Virginia pretty early on in the context of education. Um, and, and there was a little bit of people talk about lived experiences these days. And as a Fairfax County, Virginia parent, uh, I could see and experience a lot of the discontent that was taking place among groups that don't usually vote Republican. Uh, Facebook groups of parents in Northern Virginia, mom, you know, my, my wife's, you know, groups of moms that are talking about the state of the schools. And it really started, um, you know, the, 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 this all has to do with a lot, a lot of overt progressivism in institutions that used to be moderate. Fairfax County, Northern Virginia has been governed by Democrats for quite a long time. But in the last few years, there was sort of a takeover among the progressives within the party mm-hmm. on the school board and the county executive uh, government. So, and and you, if you follow the local elections, you could see that that shift taking place in real time. And it really percolated in, 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 in education on the school board most, most significantly. So, you know, it started when you have one of the richest, most well-funded school districts in the entire country failing to figure out a plan how to open up schools safely for over a year, you know, you had some of the most upscale school districts, Fairfax County, Arlington County, Alexandria, that were shut down 
and and the parental frustration grew and grew and grew. At first, this, they thought, this, this point, I I really you've been on this for a long time, and on election night and in the post, and I'm sure you've been on with people and you've seen people. I think the Democrats who are trying to explain this away try to move this argument to say, well, the, the Republicans were just fear mongering about critical race theory, and and I think that either they're ignoring it or they don't want people to focus on this started a long time ago, and it was all about the school closures, which then I think led to the cascade of other concerns about education. But you you have been on this from the beginning, and I think Democrats never quite picked up on just how angry the parents were, like you're describing. Yeah, I wrote a column last December, the same month Terry McAuliffe got in the race, saying that Democrats seem more interested in renaming schools. We, we renamed a bunch of – we renamed schools in Falls Church, of another very affluent area. We took Thomas Jefferson's name and George Mason's name off of the schools, despite – you know, quiet opposition, right? There was a majority opposition, but the loudest people, the minority were screaming the loudest. And yet they didn't have a plan to open schools for, for months later. Um, that was one thing that really hit me. Um, but but also you, you had, uh, you know, this just total bureaucracy that was not responsive to the concerns of parents. And at the same time, the schools were closed. This issue at one of the most prominent magnet schools in the state, the, the Jeff- Thomas Jefferson School here in Fairfax, they got rid of their admissions test because they wanted yeah. to re- retool the, the racial numbers, it, which it's a majority Asian school, 70 percent right. Asian. But they wanted to get more African-Americans, more Hispanics. It actually turned out they got more whites as part of their formula into the into the equation. But it just enraged a lot of voters that, again, normally vote Democratic, normally uh, don't make education uh, uh, you know, at the top of the list in their voting issues. And it inspired a really you know, what ended up becoming a pretty broad coalition of parents from sort of the moderate Democrats in the suburbs of Northern Virginia, Richmond, Tidewater, to the conservative voters who, you know, also had issues about curriculum. Um, critical race theory um, is another issue that that was very resonant. But, I, you know, everyone talks about critical race theory. Equity was sort of the the, the umbrella that, that, that connects all these issues together. Yeah, you know, I remember growing up in this Northern Virginia area, every Democrat would run campaigns for school board about excellence. You'd see like posters for excellence, the best best schools in, in the country here in Fairfax. And that was a bipartisan you know, agenda that was always touted in every school board election. In 2019, when they had the most recent school board elections, every Democratic endorsed candidate ran these big posters about equity. Equity was the slogan. And I was like, this is a little unusual. Like, I don't remember that becoming a major campaign slogan in school board elections. And when you would look at the platforms of some of these candidates who ended up serving on the school board, it was well to the left, far to the left of what you normally would see from Democrats in these school board elections and, and talking about issues that, that Democrat, even, 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 you know, moderate Democrats would never, never broach or talk about. So this is like where, where you get the, get rid of the admissions tests, get rid of gifted and talented programs, get rid of magnet schools. Um, and, and obviously the school closures was like the biggest umbrella, the biggest basket of them all, because, Every parent was just so frustrated when school, yeah, this, this, uh, even with low, low case counts. This issue of the um, sort of the the equity over excellence, um, you know, I, I think people uh, have thought of this as a coastal issue or a, you're sort of a liberal enclave issue, but it, it really is coming into middle America. We, we're talking about it here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, there's, uh, you know, sort of a movement afoot to question whether the the magnet schools in Jefferson County, which are some of the most uh, excellent academic uh, institutions in this state. And frankly, uh, I think in the country, uh, now people are questioning whether we should have those uh, in Louisville. But you've seen this in New York, you've seen it in Northern Virginia, you've seen it in California. 
the idea that we shouldn't be finding the most talented kids and nurturing them and turning them into, uh, you know, whatever it is they, they want to be and what they can be and really rejecting the idea that people have inherent talent and that that talent should be cultivated. And I, so now that we've come out of this election where education reared its head as a key issue, I actually wonder if that's not the next front here where you have essentially conservative center-right parents saying, you know, I, I want my kids' talents to be found and nurtured. And then you have everybody on the left saying, we're not going to recognize talent in any child. And we're going to make all outcomes equal, even if that means all outcomes are lesser than they could have been. And I I think that is going to be a losing argument uh, for the Democrats. And uh, it, it, it wasn't the biggest issue in this race. But what do you think about that? Is that the next frontier in this fight? Yeah, well, I saw I was uh, I, we talked to the strategists uh, a few nights ago with the Yunkin campaign. And the one thing they said that that struck me and I, I kind of appreciated it at the time. They needed to go on offense on education because they were losing in the race during the spring and summer. And their first event on education wasn't about critical race theory. It was actually at that Thomas Jefferson magnet mm. school with a diverse coalition of parents that really said, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> like, why is the, the the school not listened to us? Why has the state bureaucracy not listened to us? Why have you gone to such extremes to change a, a model that had worked for so long? Best school in the country, according to, to many, many, many ratings. So that was a major uh, kind of a jujitsu move from the Yunkin campaign that they appreciated in a way that 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 McAuliffe was just tone deaf to throughout the entire race. I mean, we talk about that debate flub, um, which clearly was a moment that changed the, the trajectory of the race. I think what gets less attention is it took McAuliffe almost three weeks to respond to an ad that clearly was denting his numbers. Like you yeah. don't see that. I mean, you know this. I mean, the, usually campaigns are adept when they know they have a weakness. They'll come up with a response ad. You know, you'll fight on on the airwaves back and forth. Youngkin was able to talk about parents, was able to talk about education in that governor's race without even having any response from from a call until three weeks later. A huge blunder, and it was it was sort of weird that he wasn't addressing the, the elephant in the room, so to speak. There was a slowness in response, and then and. How shocked were you that he decided, McAuliffe decided to close the campaign with Randy Weingarten, head of the teachers union at his rallies? I I mean, when I saw that, I, I think I tweeted that night, this, these people don't understand why their campaign is collapsing. And and they had her up there front and center, the person who was most responsible for the school closures, the thing that started all of this. I, I was stunned by it. And I think a lot of parents maybe saw that just as a giant middle finger to them saying, hey. Everything you're saying, you know, you can you can uh, you can stick it where the stuns don't shine. I just I just thought that was enormously stupid <laughs> and I couldn't well, believe it, frankly. I'll, t- I'll tell you a little story about that. Um, so we live not far from where that rally was held. And actually, my daughter has ballet class right next door to that event where the rally was. So my daughter is very starting to get interested in elections and campaigns. So I wasn't there, but my wife took our two kids to, to the event to kind of see what what a what a campaign event is like. And McAuliffe was running behind schedule, and I was kind of texting with my wife to see when they're getting back and what's going on at the event. And they said, someone, someone named Randy is, is speaking. <laughs> and I was, like, trying to figure out who, who it could be, like, who, who was that warm-up act. And it was Randy Weingarten. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. You, that, that someone who was sort of the face of school closures, the face of the resistance to kind of getting uh, progress in education – 
was literally one of his closing surrogates in Fairfax County. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there, you know, maybe there's some base voters that, that might be responsive to her message, but you should even listen to the soundbite that she, when she talks to the voters, it was very off, off kilter to where, where the mood of the state was. And I can't understand. I actually asked a lot of, um, you know, operatives, top national democratic operatives who were close to the McAuliffe campaign. Uh, I asked them, what, what, what was that all about? And they said, you know, talk to Terry, talk to, talk to McAuliffe. We can't answer that. So, it's really, yeah. it's really incredible, and 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 so what I want to ask you to sort of get into the to the nuts and bolts of how Yunkin won is about the people in those communities uh, where you live and and really that that swung towards Yunkin. I was on with Larry Sabato uh, on the, uh, CNN and PBS the other night. I mean, he he flatly said there was no persuasion in this race. This was a Democratic enthusiasm, uh, you know, issue. Republicans voted and Democrats didn't, even though I said, of course, what is true. McAuliffe got more votes, 200,000 more votes than Northam got. I mean, it was a high turnout election. But his whole theory was that there weren't any people who voted for Joe Biden who turned around and voted for Glenn Youngkin. That couldn't possibly be true. And I said, well, if Democrats believe that, you know, they're whistling past the graveyard because obviously – there were Democrat-leaning or previous Democrat-performing voters who switched to Republican here. It had – there's no – if you just do the math, it had to have been. I, I assume you agree with that? Yeah. If you look at the – you could do either look at the exit poll data, look at the independents, which went almost by 20 points for Biden, went by I think nine points for, for Yunkin. Or it was a huge swing among independents, huge swing among suburban voters from the 2020 election. You know, the numbers – I was talking to a top number cruncher in Virginia last night. They said about 10 percent of the Biden vote went to Yunkin, which is a pretty – in these partisan times, it's actually a very high – Number another exit poll that came out that was really interesting. Uh, Youngkin won about thirty-seven percent of the Jewish vote, which is a huge yeah. number. Um, and that there, some of this equity stuff really ticks off um, Democratic Jewish voters because of some of the ramp. There was an anti-Semitic uh, screed that one Democratic lawmaker made in the final week of a campaign. You had a member of the school board that was vocally anti-Israel and using her platform for for pretty crazy stuff that resonated in the Jewish community and it gave Yunkin some unusual support. But, um, you know, you talk about Larry, I mean, I was actually at UVA right before the pandemic speaking to a group of students and I had dinner with a, a few folks, a professor, a program manager who actually served in the Obama administration. And we were just chatting, having a, a good conversation. And she casually mentioned at the time that she was sending her elementary school son. She was actually home, homeschooling, I, I should say her, her, her son. And I was like, you don't seem like the type to, to homeschool your kids. And she just casually mentioned that the Charlottesville, the, U, the area around UVA, the schools had just gotten rid of their gifted and talented program. Oh. So the curriculum, the, the standards has gotten so low that she basically brought all the neighborhood kids to her home one day a week to give them supplemental education. And I was sort of that was sort of one of those early seeds that you get planted in your head. Unlike even a diehard partisan Democrat um, is, is having to make changes, having to really adjust as a result of some of these, you know, what I would call educational extremism going to the far left on these issues. I, I guess I'm not surprised by what I've heard from Democrats in the aftermath of this race, sort of blaming this entire thing on, I mean, you hear the term racist dog whistle used by every pundit, everybody that's on TV, just over and over. Obviously, the talking points went out. But I'm surprised they are sticking to it in the face of the fact that Republicans elected 66% of their ticket was not white. <laughs> we have an African-American female lieutenant governor who's who, by the way, is amazing, came here from Jamaica, went some Sears, joined the Marines before she was even a citizen. I mean, it's really a great story. You have a, 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 a Hispanic attorney general, Mieres, now. So we have one out of our three candidates is white, and yet Democrats' explanation for all this is, well, 
the Republicans got all the races to vote, which, you know, if 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 Republicans are, are trying to get races to vote, we're doing a, a piss poor job of explaining who's running because they're out electing non-white candidates. I mean, it, it makes no sense. And, and I, just, I just wonder how much of it is PR posturing or if this is what they really believe and if they're going to stick with this theory moving into the midterms. Look, this is why Against the Grain exists, because there's such an echo chamber out there that, you know, you can't sometimes even reality and, and, and actual outcomes don't don't make a dent in, in people's perceptions. Um, you know, that was the moment the not the, the one thing I thought was going to happen early on was it would be hard for Youngkin, hard for someone like Jason Meares to win in these, you know, Republican Party scrums. It, it wasn't a primary. It was this weird kind of convention they had it for the Republicans in Virginia. But usually you get the hard right candidates that can often emerge from these contests, people who are less electable in a general election. And I thought I wrote about this at the time when you've got Youngkin and then you had who, who was one of the more moderate, pragmatic guys in the field. And then you had, you know, like, like you noted, an African-American Marine uh, veteran, military veteran as lieutenant governor, as the standard bearer. And you had the son of Cuban immigrants in Jason yeah. Miares, who was one of the most electable candidates in that field. When they had that ticket, I knew you know there was an opportunity for for Republicans, just because you don't see that these days very often. The, the big problem in the Trump years is that you get candidates that are well to the right of where where the average voter is, and they they got lucky. Well, maybe it was it was a testament to Youngkin's campaign skill and, and being able to navigate the, those headwinds and and those challenges. But it was also a testament to having good candidates deciding to run and running strong campaigns. I want to talk to you about Youngkin's uh, tactical successes and about whether or not that is a blueprint for Republicans. But we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be right back. You're on the Fly Over Country podcast with Scott Jennings. Our guest is Josh Crowshire. Stay with us. Please ensure that name tags are secure to all checked and carry-on luggage. Those with extra baggage should switch to another podcast. Welcome back to the Flyover Country Podcast. I'm Scott Jennings, your host. Our guest today uh, from the National Journal, Josh Crowshire. We're talking about the election results uh, last week uh, in Virginia and around the country. We've been focusing on Virginia. I do want to talk about some of the other things that happened. But wrapping up on the Virginia piece, uh, we've been focusing on sort of the Democratic uh, failings. But let's talk about what went right for the Republicans. Glenn Youngkin, and I made this uh statement on TV, a lot of people have said, um, you know, he may have written a blueprint for the Republicans to start talking to voters again in the suburbs. You've interviewed some of his people. Just curious about uh, your chats with his strategists. And I'm sort of interested to know, did they know early on that this was that they had a plan to nibble back in the suburbs or did it kind of fall on their laps? What's your thought on that? Look, they, they knew they had a good candidate, uh, a guy who, who was a quick learner. He's an outsider, never, never ran for office before was more of a donor uh, as a CEO of the Carlisle Group, but he had a quick aptitude for politics and they were very impressed. Plus, he also had money to spend, um, which was, uh, you know, a definite asset at a time when you're running against a really good fundraiser and Terry McAuliffe. He was able to pour his own money in early on. He also raised quite a bit of money, but he he used his own funds early on to get his message out there and, and namely to define himself in a very uh, positive way. He wore the sweater vest. He was, you know, he played basketball at Rice University um, and, and, and was always in these ads shooting, shooting hoops, um, you know, talking about his first job working in a kitchen um, to kind of show his work, try to try to soften the heart, the hard edges. Sometimes you can, you know, be seen more like Mitt Romney, the, the risk, the, the risk that I think a lot of the a lot of the Youngkin folks worried about is he, he could be like Mitt Romney, where nice yeah. guy, moderate minded, but 
you know, a plutocrat, a guy who's out of touch with the average voter's concerns. So, th- you know, they get, they did a lot of bio ads at the beginning to really um, make him much more relatable, to show his his personal side, uh, wearing the sweater vest, as, as which became sort of a, a branding uh, <laughs> icon. That's, new, that's the new Klan uniform, the fleece vest. Have you heard? I, 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 by the yeah. way, there's like an L.L. Bean in the Tonyus Mall in northern Virginia selling these fleece vests for like, a hundred bucks. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is the white supremacist shopping at the mall in Tyson's corner. I mean, it's just sort of like this ridiculous. And it got all the way to the, the Joe Biden was even on this message. It was crazy. He was also relentless. Scott, he was also had a relentlessly positive message. I mean, yeah. I don't I, I met Matt Connetti at the free beacon had a good column this week where he said he never saw, um, Youngkin frown. He always had a smile on his face. He, he was hopeful, um, talked about his agenda. He really, I mean, after running a very heavy bio uh, campaign early on, he actually had five principles, talked about law and order, talked about schools, talked about a, a cut, a tax cut for, for, for groceries. Uh, so it was a classic throwback Republican campaign mm-hmm. that was also very positive, focused on winning over these middle of the road voters that voted for Mitt Romney, voted uh, for Republicans in the past, but didn't vote for Donald Trump in the last two elections. So, so throwback is right. And, and, and it was, I mean, it's going to sound old fashioned and rudimentary, but you know, he wrote a platform. I mean, the guy picked out three or four issues, wrote, wrote down what he would do about it. And uh, it's what Trump didn't do in 2020. I mean, they quite literally didn't write a platform at the Republican National Convention, which I know is different than the issues you're running on in a campaign. But it showed a commitment to uh, non-personality driven politics. It showed a commitment to issue politics, which actually gave him a chance to talk to people who wouldn't ordinarily think of voting Republican and specifically those people, those moderate uh, voters in, in the suburbs. And I guess the fear would have been that if you try to appeal to those folks too much, you're going to lose something with your hardest core conservative, your hardest core MAGA base. But what's true is Yunkin did better than Trump in every single county in Virginia, from the most reddest conservative county all the way up to the bluest counties. Were you surprised that that the rural areas turned out for a message and a candidate like Yunkin at the levels they did? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you told me that Glenn Yunkin would get higher margins in the rural parts of the state from Shenandoah to Roanoke than Donald Trump did, which he did in many of these counties, I would have been stunned because, you know, I, I thought the biggest worry for the Yunkin campaign would have been, you know, make, needing enough inroads in the suburbs to maintain an inevitable loss in some of the rural votes, voters among rural voters that, that were big Trump fans. But he was able to kind of, you know, uh, not attack Trump, but but not ally himself with Trump. He kind of walked a very, a very tricky tightrope effectively where he wouldn't, you know, he clearly didn't want Trump to come in the state. Trump was a net negative for him, but you can, the election results proved you can be supportive of Trump's policies and you can not, not have to say, you know, criticize Trump, but you can also run on your own agenda, run on your own policies, run on traditional uh, conservative policies that can win over suburban voters. You know, look, I, and I think, Yunkin made some notable gains in the suburbs. He gained about seven points uh, from Trump uh, in, in Northern Virginia in, in the big counties. Loudon, I think he did a little bit better than that. Richmond area as well. But you know, I thought he could have done even a little bit better. And the fact that he was able to run up I mean, the, the fact that the Democratic brand is so tarnished now yeah. in, in these rural white working class parts of the of the country. And actually, there, there's a lot of evidence too that. A black working class voters actually turned away from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Some of the pickups in the state legislature came in plurality black districts where, where Republicans won a sizable share of uh, non-white voters. 
that is also a big lesson for I mean, it's more for the Democrats. But if, if they're already seeding so much of the vote, it doesn't it means all Republicans need to do is just make so, moderate inroads. In the, in the suburbs, which Youngkin did easily. In, in yeah, what, what's what's stunning for Republicans is just when you think you can't squeeze another vote, you know, out of the most rural counties, that Youngkin went out and found, you know, not just one or two, but but a lot of votes. And it 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 makes me wonder how many Republican voters out there, rural, suburban, wherever they were, how many people were sitting on the sideline in 2020 who went in. And we saw this in some down ticket races in the country who went in and voted Republican down the ticket and just just didn't do it for Trump. They just they just didn't vote in that race. They just left it out. And yet they were waiting to come back and vote for someone uh, who had checked all the right boxes on issues and uh, and uh, just didn't turn them off personally. It's a good lesson, I think, for 2024. And it, I actually I actually find it interesting because, you know, Nikki Haley, a few months ago, you know, she gave this big speech saying, you know, the problem with Republicans is that we're too nice. And I and I thought at the time, yeah, that, that was exactly our problem in 2020. 20 people just thought we were we were way too nice and that's why they didn't vote for Donald Trump. I think Yunkin flipped this on its head and and like you said, relentless positivity, a set of issues and it worked across the board and we didn't lose a thing among the people that I think Nikki Haley was trying to appeal to. Well, I mean, and, and politics is fundamentally a forward-looking business. That, that that's why Trump's obsession over the 2020 election results and his obscene denialism of the results is, is so damaging for Republicans. But it's also why Terry McAuliffe's obsession over Trump in a governor's race, where we're you know any most smart people who understand politics recognize that you know Trump recognize number one that Youngkin wasn't Trump, but also that number two maybe in a congressional race. You could worry about who has the majority and, and there are federal issues that that come into play. But in a governor's race, it's about schools. It's about jo- it's about the local economy. It's about it's about much more bread and butter issues. And the fact that all McCall, I mean, I, I wrote in my column, you know, borrowing a line from Joe Biden, everything you heard from McAuliffe was a noun, a verb and Donald Trump. Uh, he couldn't get past the Trump message. Yeah. And maybe that it kept, you know, kept some of those swing voters that were thinking about Yunkin into his fold, but it turned off a whole lot more. He actually, Terry McAuliffe, according to the exit polls, had favorability numbers about the same as Donald Trump when yeah. his campaign was over, which is really, really telling. He he sacrificed the likability he may have had at the beginning of the campaign in, in this scorched earth, you know, race, and he undermined himself a lot more than he helped himself. Well, and it, it just was apparent over time, you know, Yunkin, as you said, always smiling, always positive. His whole demeanor and attitude was just nothing like Donald Trump. And and to try to argue that this was essentially, you know, Trump in a vest, as, as Joe Biden uh, argued and others, no one was buying it because Yunkin's overall attitude was just so different. And, um, you know, he didn't insult people. He I mean, he he just he didn't do any of the things that you associate with the Trump brand. And so McAuliffe trying to get people to draw that line. I mean, it was obvious it wasn't working. And yet they ran it all the way to the end. It was really, really kind of stunning, actually. Yeah. One other thing that um, stunned me about that strategy is the successes that Democrats had, even when Trump was in office, was not talking about Trump. In 2018, and Dan Senna is one of the smartest Democratic strategists I know. He was the architect behind getting Democrats back the House majority. Um, he has said over and over again that uh, we didn't talk about Trump. We that, that was sort of the, the mood music, but we talked about health care. We talked about issues. We talked about policy. That's that's how Abigail Spanberger in Virginia got elected. That's how Elaine Luria in Virginia, a Democrat, got elected. And for a guy in Terry McAuliffe, who was the DNC head, who's a party boss, who should know politics, he didn't get it. I mean, and, and I don't understand what the strat. I mean, again, like usually when you're when you're playing to the base so aggressively, 
in the late stages of a campaign, you're losing. I mean, you're desperate. You're, you're throwing some Hail Mary passes out there. But that wasn't yeah. just his late, late game strategy. That was pretty much the whole logic of his campaign. And it, it was a very, I think, a very uh, illogical strategy that cost him badly. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of late. I mean, let's be honest. It's kind of lazy. I mean, it. I mean, it's a it's a lazy way to try to run a race. And I, I sort of get the feeling Democrats thought they were going to run this all through the midterm, and now <laughs> they've realized that even in a blue state like Virginia, it doesn't really work. And so uh, they're back at the drawing board. Um, I want to. I want to. A lot of races around the country. A lot of crazy things happened. The Buffalo mayor's race, the referendum in Minneapolis, the Seattle city attorney's race. You know, there was a rejection, I think, of this progressive wokeism, you know, that Carvel was railing on in the New York Times the other day. The one that actually stunned me, I mean, we're talking about rich man race in Virginia. Now we're talking about poor man race in New Jersey. The guy who knocked off the state Senate president of New Jersey by spending 153 bucks, half of it at Dunkin' Donuts, who was just like super pissed that he couldn't get a gun permit. So he files for office and ends up knocking off one of the most powerful Democrats in New Jersey. And the and, and so the elite, the the, the elite a reaction to this guy has been such so disdainful. And I, I think it's sort of, it's amazing. And, and I actually think there's a lot in common between Yunkin and this guy, totally different walks of life, totally different economic stations, like totally, you know, different ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, but they both sort of had an idea. They were mad about the direction of their area. You know, something happened that caused them to run for office. And voila, voters responded to that kind of, I'm in this race because I have authentic issues and I want to deal with it. To me, that's the similarity. That's the tie that binds. How closely did you were you tracking anything in New Jersey? And I assume, like me, you were stunned by it. Yeah, I'm not as closely as Virginia, but I was stunned. That was sort of like uh, AOC winning a primary, you know, in 2018 yeah. that no one saw coming. That you had a guy who spent about 150 dollars on his campaign, had a Facebook page, was a truck driver who upset the most powerful Democrat in the New Jersey state legislature. Um, but look, the, the the fact that the results from New Jersey mirrored the results from Virginia, and you had also a pretty little known uh, state legislator almost you know come within a couple points of defeating Governor Murphy when the polls showed this as a, a blowout. You know, it tells you that there's something bigger out there um, yeah. that Democrats really need to be concerned about. Is it um, all Biden? Do you do you think most of that is a referendum on Biden, or do you think? Do you think there are just deeper issues with the Democratic brand that are even beyond him? It's both. I mean, I think I've been befuddled, and I've written about this many times in my column, how Biden ran as a unifying moderate, and from the get-go, from the seeking a partisan $1.9 trillion plan that had had the potential for bipartisan support, he's been pandering to the left and, and really giving a lot uh, to the to the most extreme folks within his own party, most recently on this um, you know, bypassing his own infrastructure accomplishment to try to get additional trillions in spending that don't have the degree of political support he needs. Um, you know, look, I, I, I also think the COVID issue is one that's hanging over this, 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 the Jersey race and the Virginia race. The, both states are, are, are blue suburban states that support common sense that supported common sense measures to stop the spread. Like they're, they're not like anti-vax, anti-science states, yeah. but what you saw in both Virginia and New Jersey, uh, you had uh, school closures that, that were among the top 10 in the country in both states. And, and in, in these suburban Bergen County and uh, up northern New Jersey, these these areas that went from from uh, Republicans to Democrats in the last few years swung back to the Republican fold in a big way. Um, and, you know, both states have low case counts. Like they're, they're, I can tell you from Virginia, even a lot of Democratic friends of mine who supported a lot of these health measures are kind of wondering what what the health bureaucracy is doing when you have tiny numbers of cases and you still have a very cautious, very yeah. uh, 
re- regulatory uh, bureaucracy that's keeping things keeping you know no, that's showing no no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no optimism. There's no positive news, even though there is a lot of things to be really excited about. Uh, that looks like this Delta variant is finally going away, and there's a whole lot of good news on the vaccines and, and even you know these therapeutics that are that are now out there to help stop stop the worries of for, for, for people worried about COVID. So I, I think that was sort of the overhang also in both of these races. Not that people were against masks 100% of the time or not that people didn't trust the science, but there were some suburban moderate voters that want to know when the where the light is at the end of the tunnel, want to hear some kind of optimism from the public health bureaucracy and want to see their leaders address, you know, address that, have benchmarks to when we finally get out of this mess and start having a path to full reopening. Well, I think they also want to see some consistency from the public health bureaucracy. You know, today it's message X, tomorrow it's message Y that's contradictory. And I think now, so uh, Delta variant waning, uh, vaccines clearly work. Pfizer today, as we're recording this, has announced their their miracle COVID pill seems to yeah. be highly effective. And, and you can now give vaccines to kids over the age of five. Uh, my wife and I were talking last night. I wonder if we get our children vaccinated, which we're I'm vaxxed. My 12-year-old is vaxxed. I think we're going to get our kids. But but I want to know, are they going to be able to take these masks off? I mean, I I stick a mask on a four year old walking him into preschool every day. And I think a lot of parents just at a a very fundamental level want to know, when when have I done enough for you for you to to relent on this? And we'll and if they don't relent on this stuff, I I think the backlash will only grow. And, And if I were Biden. I mean, I know he says he's not going to meddle in the science, but he meddles in everything else. And if this is, to me, one of the fundamental things dragging him down is this, you know, people out there believing that they're being forced to do things that make no common sense. Yeah. I mean, j- just say, get the trust the science, get the vaccine, take the masks off. Like yes. that should be the, the it should be an incentive. It, it both incentivizes people to get vaccinated and get their kids vaccinated. And then you have, a you know, the reward. It's not, it shouldn't even be seen as reward. It should be seen as common sense that the vaccines work, science works. And, you know, you shouldn't be catering to the lowest common denominator of, of you know, super anxious parents who need to trust the science, frankly. They need to trust the reality on the ground and, and have um, the, the majority, I think, it wants a pathway for, for getting things back to normal. There's some data out there. There's like a, a pretty high percentage of people out there, you know, uh, who are frankly fearful of, of, of reengaging in real life. And I think one of Biden's biggest problems, I mean, they're most all, all mostly Democrat voters. One of his biggest problems is getting these people to re-engage in the economy, re-engage in America, and sort of re-engage in our in our normal life. And 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 it's a it's a large percentage of people who just have been made to believe that that they have to live in fear that this will never end. And I think for Biden to have any chance to recover the Democratic brand on this, they have to they have to show a light at the end of the tunnel, even to the people who have been the most worried about it all along. So. We'll see if he can do that. And that'll have a big impact on what we'll talk about after the break, which is Democratic fortunes in 22 and 24. Can the Republicans sweep back into power? You're on the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. We're with Josh Crowshire from the National Journal. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This area is for loading and unloading only. Time to unload. All right. Welcome back for the last segment of this week's Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Josh Krauschauer from the National Journal is here. He writes the Against the Grain column and has his own Against the Grain podcast. Some of the smartest political analysis coming out of Washington, D.C. I encourage you to read Against the Grain and listen to the podcast, all products of Josh's work at the National Journal. Josh, we've been talking about the election results from the last week's races, but uh, we have important races coming up in 22 and 24, the midterms. I mean, 
My view is it's basically a mortal lock at this point that Republicans take over the U.S. House. I assume you agree with that. But based on what you saw last week, where do you put the range of probability for for Republicans uh, as they try to get back into control and put Kevin McCarthy in the speaker's chair? Yeah, I mean, even before Joe Biden's job approval numbers tanked in the last few months, you know, I would have said, you know, 80, 80 percent chance Republicans take back the House before all this, just because redistricting and reapportionment is going to hand at least a few would have you know handed a few seats to McCarthy and the Republicans. And now that the environment at this point looks so uh you know, horrible for for Democrats. Even if they even if they rebound a little bit, pass some legislation, get their act together, the economy gets a little better. Just the fundamentals that there, there'll be a check against the Democrats in power. And, and, and on, I honestly, we've talked about this on on this show, but the challenge that they have grappling with their own party's extremism. You know, with Republicans, it's easy to pinpoint the the, the, the Louis Gohmerts, the crazies, the Marjorie Taylor Greens. You know, that that's in the media all the time. Uh, they're, they're you know the. The mainstream media doesn't do the Democratic Party any favors when they don't talk about the extremes within the Democratic Party and oh, they yeah. to them. And that's that's a pro- that's going to be a big challenge. I mean, Republicans have their own challenges on the, on that front in 2022, but as we saw with the results uh, the, this week, that's going to be a big big problem for Democrats if they can't get there. Um, if they can't, uh, if Biden doesn't get the progressives to kind of be quiet and, and let the moderates take over. Heading into this week, I, I was sort of 50-50 on the Senate. You know, it's d- different races; they have different you know, kinds of character to these races. And, you know, I, I think the results of this election would give any Republican strategist hope that the Senate actually now leans uh, uh, Republican. But I still think it's probably heavily dependent upon candidate recruitment. And uh, and, and it runs through New Hampshire. I, what's your view on the Senate races right now? Where do you put Republican chances of regaining control? Yeah, there's still a lot of volatility in these Senate races. I think the best news for Republicans is that after looking at last night's or this week's results, there could be a recruiting surge. Like Pennsylvania is a good example where in a bad environment for Democrats, that's certainly a hold. It could be a hold if if Republicans get someone uh, of talent to to, to replace Pat Toomey. But the field of the Trump endorsed candidate, Sean Parnell, uh, has a boatload of baggage. He was accused of domestic abuse. Um, he's not the only one, the only Republican Senate candidate that that has that kind of, kind of record. And it, it, it's a problem. It's a real problem. Uh, a new, uh, just be, in the wake of Yunkin's victory, a, a businessman with a lot of money and has a more Yunkin-like record is looking likely to jump in that Pennsylvania Senate race. So, I mean, Doug Ducey in Arizona, like, I don't know if he's going to run. I know Senator Scott would love him to run. I know yeah. Senator McConnell would love him to run. That field, the Republican field, I am underwhelmed by in Arizona. If Ducey got in and survived a primary, you know he would be the favorite, I think, in, in, in that contest. Um, but again, you need to have good candidates. You need to, and Senate races in particular, you can't uh, win with bad candidates. You can't win when you're getting so much scrutiny on the on these big statewide campaigns. So, look, I think the environment is such now that Republicans probably have the advantage uh, to win back the Senate. They only need one more seat to get the, the outright 51 seat majority. But there's still a lot of volatility. We still don't know who the nominees are going to be. And they need to get some good candidates in states like Pennsylvania and Arizona uh, if they want to fully take advantage of, of, the, of the environment that, that, that looks good right now. What's your gut instinct on the Ohio Republican primary for Senate? Who do you think has the upper hand there? It's a mess. I mean, I, look, I don't because because it's a friendly, a favorable Republican environment. It's hard to see Republicans not holding on to Rob Portman's seat. But, you know, between Josh Mandel uh, pandering to every extreme element of the Republican Party and he's, you know, he was someone who ran as like a Mitt Romney establishment Senate candidate and uh, has totally done a 180, has, has crashed and burned along the way. 
Um, he's the nominal front runner, but I, you know, I think a lot of his baggage is going to catch up to him in that primary. You got JD Vance, who also was once a critical, a Trump critical uh, Republican, who uh, you know got fame for for his book, uh, you know, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, but he's also doing the same thing. He's kind of kind of doing the same Trump light approach that that I don't think is very uh, effective, um, at least beyond Republican primary politics. That's going to be a big test whether there's someone who can kind of do the Yunkin, you know, that can straddle yeah. both. I mean, there's a woman, Jane Timken, who's running. Yeah. Uh, she, she's close to Trump, was the former state party chairwoman. She hasn't really caught on fire her campaign yet, but she's someone who kind of fits a little more in that Yunkin mold. She was close to Trump, close to Romney, you know, huge supporter of Republicans across the board. I mean, she really has been you know, a real loyal soldier there for the party in, in Ohio. But I think you're right. She hasn't quite taken off yet. Um, and, uh, and it, yeah, I'd read some accounts that maybe she was in line possibly for the Trump endorsement early on and that got derailed. That would have, that would have really enhanced her ability, um, at the top of the race, but we'll see if she can now reconfigure based on what she saw at a Yunkin. Of course, you know, he won in a convention. She's got to win a primary. It's different, different thing. Well, then there are a lot of candidates and that's, that's such a, a crowded scrum. I think a lot of stuff could happen in that primary. The campaign really hasn't gelled fully yet. But this is the problem. This is the challenge that Republicans face in that you need to convince voters that you can be supportive of Trump's policies, but you need someone electable to, to win. Ohio should. I mean, again, Ohio should be a state Republicans hang on to. I think a real worry for McConnell, frankly, isn't necessarily just winning races, even though that's a, a, the top priority for him. But it's who's going to be serving in the caucus. You know, mm-hmm. do you want like Josh Mandel, who's going to be saying crazy things to be representing the Republican Party? Mo Brooks, who was one of the speakers at the January 6th rally, who's the front runner in Alabama. Like, do you really want that guy uh, to be be one of the you know 50 or so faces in the Republican Party? It, it, it's a challenge and it's one that's tricky for Republicans to navigate. Do you do you give uh, Katie Britt there in Alabama any chance to beat Mo Brooks? Her fundraising has been very impressive. Yeah. You, yeah. With that money and that that profile, she has Senator Shelby's uh, support as well. So that's that you can't you can't sneeze at that. But look, the in Alabama, the Republican Party is is very, very much to the right of, of, of where the average voter is in the country. So, you know, this is this is the you know the, the biggest the toughest question is, is going to be a lot of the stuff surrounding January 6th. And do you acknowledge the election results? And I think there's an easy answer for Republicans. You know, <laughs> Duncan kind of handled it masterfully in in uh, in Virginia. He said, you know, it was pretty explicit about where he stood on all that stuff and was rejecting a lot of a lot of the crazy. But, you know, you have a lot of other candidates that are tap dancing with this this very, uh, you know, a nihilistic movement, frankly. And uh, I don't think it's going to do the Republican Party any good in general elections. Any uh, gut feel for the primary in North Carolina where you've got uh, Trump in that race having endorsed Ted Budd, but uh, former Governor McCrory there and Walker. It's, it's an interesting primary. It's not clear to me how that one's going to shake out yet. Yeah, that's one of the best bellwethers of where the party is. Uh, Governor McCrory is sort of a pre-Trump figure. He, he won an election before Trump was even on the political scene and served a term in office. Uh, you know, he's well-respected among Republicans in the state, not quite as conservative as Congressman Bud. You know, I think Republicans are less worried about that race just because even though Bud is quite a bit to the right of McCrory, he's not tweeting crazy things every day on Twitter. He, he's not, he, he's running a, I mean, his campaign hasn't been firing on all cylinders, but he's not doing the stuff that Josh Mandel is doing. He's not doing the stuff that Mo Brooks is doing. And, you know, you, you can tolerate someone in a state like North Carolina that voted for Trump. You know, I think you can tolerate someone who's a little little bit further to the right. They can still win a general election as long as they're not absolutely, um, you know, advertising their extremism at every turn. Um, but but I think the more electable candidate certainly would be someone like former Governor McCrory. 
Let's move on to 2024. And I'll just ask you, as you said here today, do you think Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee in 24? Look, he's the, he's the, he's the leader in the clubhouse, right? If he wants to run, uh, which I'm not convinced about, like I think he, he likes to, he wants, certainly wants to create the perception that he's going to be running in 2024. Um, whether in three years that that's where he's at, two or three years, that's where he's at. I, I'm not convinced. But I do think if he does win, he would be the heavy favorite. And a lot of Republicans, you know, thinking about running themselves would probably step aside. Will Joe Biden be the Democratic nominee in 2024? No, I I, I don't think. um, Between, candidly, his his political, I I thought he was a little more politically adept. Um, So between his own uh, struggles right now and and his age, frankly, he'll be 82 uh, in in 2024. I think it's going to be a wide open Democratic field. You know, what, what you're articulating is, is really an amazing thing. If, if the sitting president doesn't run for re-election, Nancy Pelosi looks like she may be on the brink of retirement. Kamala Harris is, you know, perhaps more unpopular than, than Joe Biden. There's really a leadership vacuum at the top of the Democratic Party and an opportunity, I would think, for someone to step in. I don't know who that is. I don't know where they're going to come from, but but there's a real vacuum there. Um, and, um, and I, you know, I don't know if it's going to be Pete Buttigieg who tries to come back or someone from the progressive flank that tries to assert authority. But, but I, I think this is one of the things plaguing the Democrats is, you know, there's a knowledge that Biden is, you know, probably not running again, maybe not up to it right now that Pelosi's on her way out and Harris isn't, you know, catching on and, and who's in charge, you know, who, who's our next big thing, who's going to be our messenger to the American people. And, and, I don't know if the Democrats have yet internalized what a mess that could be in the run up to a presidential campaign. Uh, yeah, I mean, my against the grain way out prediction would be that neither Biden nor Harris will, will be the nominee in, in 2024. I, I think there, there's a lot of evidence showing like some real challenges governing. Uh, and it, it's only going to get worse, uh, I think. I mean, I think the economy could get better, but there's just some real significant challenges that seem, frankly, above above their head right now. And they've made some bad political misjudgments in the first year. Um, Harris hasn't helped herself out either with, with we don't need to go into all the gaffes and yeah. mistakes she's made, but look that pe- Democrats tell me about that all the time. They're privately worried about her aptitude for politics. Um, so I, I do think there's room for a sort of a new face. Um, look, if Biden's popular and Harris is the VP, you know, that, that that's, if he doesn't run, she's a logical successor, but look, if Biden can't turn things around, um, and that's a fear within Democratic Party uh, leadership right now. I, I think there's a very good chance you could see a brand new, gener- a brand new slate of candidates that that, that run in 2024. You know, you watch his performances and you see these town halls and his, you know, his appearances. It's just hard for me to imagine you throw another three years on this guy and how he's going to be up to a re-election campaign. And this one, by the way, he won't be able to hide in the basement. I mean, this, this is a real campaign. You're going to have to campaign. It's going to have to be a vigorous effort. I mean, he he was really bailed out in the last one by. Not having to do that much, and by Trump, you know, doing too much, and uh, and and that's just not it's not going to be the case next time. And it's and it's Biden. It's also his staff that hasn't served him well. I mean, look, I, I I I've written about this in real time, so I'm not I'm not playing Monday morning quarterback. But the notion that you wouldn't want to get you would hold your own bipartisan priority, an infrastructure bill we've been talking about in this town for years, and you wouldn't want to pass that. Um, and get some points on the board and get Republican, you know, show your credibility with and keeping your campaign promises. Like the fact that you wouldn't do that and you'd hold your whole own agenda hostage to, to the left wing, uh, what, what Tom Davis, uh, the former congressman, calls the herbal tea uh, party, the <laughs> herbal tea caucus. It, it, it is, it is I, I don't get it. Like, I honestly don't get it. And it, 
clearly we can see the political bleeding that's being being uh, done to him. Um, he's his job approval down to down to about forty two percent on average, uh, and people just don't trust the credibility and the competence of this administration at this point. All right, Josh, uh, I want to close out the show today with our famous lightning round here on the Flyover Country podcast, uh, where I ask our guest a series of one answer or short answer questions, which I have not shared with you uh, in advance, but I'm uh, curious to get your reactions to these questions. So number one, right out of the gate, do you, Nationals fan Josh Crowshire, miss Bryce Harper? No, no, we won a World Series without him. Juan Soto, we need a sign to a long-term contract. Um, but no, Harper, there's, there's certain Nats, there's certain, you, as a sports fan, there's certain players you, you kind of have to root for because they're on your team. It's sort of the same political tribalism that, that's going on in sports. <laughs> but I never really, I, I, I thought he was sort of a jerk, uh, was a show off. And I, I, I never, I want, you know, in my head, I thought he was a productive player and, 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 uh, you know, would have loved to have him in a Nationals uniform. But once we got Juan Soto and, uh, you know, Scherzer was the face of the franchise before we had to let him go this past season. But no, I mean, I'm glad Harper had a great year in Philly last year, but they're not winning either. And uh, he just wasn't a team player. I'm, I'm glad we moved on. All right. Number two, favorite campaign you've ever followed anywhere in the country? Wow. Um, boy, I have a lot of lot of favorites. Um, you know, I, I, one of my favorite stories, um, one of my favorite trips was going to Minnesota in 2014. Uh, I wrote a cover story when we when National Journal had our weekly magazine. I did a cover story about follow, basically about Al Franken's Senate campaign that year. And it, the premise was Franken doesn't talk to the press in Washington. He rarely talks to the Washington media. So I would go to Minnesota and literally try to chase him around and, and figure out like what's going on with his, his campaign. And um, I actually met up with him at the state fair. Uh, he didn't want to take any questions, but we were, I was, you know, at the state fair, you're, you can't really, you know, avoid attention, avoid the press. And um, it was, a, it turned out to be a great story, but, and then Franken is a, you know, sort of a funny guy. And I started asking him questions about the state of play in politics. And he went on what I wrote was a fair filibuster where he talked about <laughs> cheese and, and, and butter for two minutes when I was asking him about healthcare, but it was, it was actually kind of funny um, and, and it really made the story like Franken actually uh, maybe unintentionally was giving me a lot of material for what I was working on. Um, but yeah, like that, that, that ran, and, and also anytime you wrote about Al Franken, he was kind of the, you know, the Trump, you know, you would get a lot of attention, uh, yeah. Sarah Palin type of clicks that you would get back in the day. So any, anything about him was always interesting and entertaining and uh, covering that race was, was, was quite interesting. So I'm going to take a, a quick aside from this. You just raised an issue that I, I wanted to ask you about. How much do, do click rates on stories for someone like you in the, in the publication you write for, how much does that influence what topics you're picking week to week to choose to cover? Or do, you, do you not pay attention to it or do you, do you pay a lot of attention to it? So uh, speaking for myself, uh, we're lucky at National Journal um, that we're a membership uh, we're subscriber-based publication. We have been for for some time. So you, my stuff is free for for readers. But our business model is, you know, really premised on quality over over clicks and quantity. So we have, you know, the hotline is our election newsletter, which gives all the up analysis, up to the date news, and all the campaigns, which uh, has been going on for for quite a long time. And you know, I, I've been grateful not to have to deal with pandering to anyone. I can just kind of write against the grain. I can write. Uh, my best analysis based on reporting based on covering events that, that I can put out there. And, you know, look, I think one of the more distressing signs in the media is that um, there's an incentive structure designed to kind of get clicks or play to an audience, play to an ideological audience increasingly that I think is unhealthy. 
Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for, my, for National Journal and, and, and for my editor and for my, my bosses over there who kind of, you know, let me write independently and write, write based on the best reporting and analysis that, that I can do. All right. At the Crash Hour Thanksgiving table, what side dish can you not live without? What's the number one side Ooh. dish? That's a well. So we we always go to Ohio. My in laws are from the Ohio in Cleveland area, so we almost go there every year. Um, look, I, I, I I'll cheat a little bit. We we always have lemon. Meringue. My birthday is right around Thanksgiving, and I always I, I'm in love with lemon meringue pie. So it's not a side dish, but it's 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 a staple of uh, one of my favorite dessert foods every Thanksgiving. You know, I like the stuffing too. I mean, I, the stuffing yeah. is is a staple. Um, but Thanksgiving and lemon meringue pie for me and. Uh, it, it sort of goes hand in hand with Thanksgiving as well. All right. In your opinion, who, which legislator, uh, current or recent, gives the best walk and talk interview on Capitol Hill? Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, look, I'll, I'll give you. I'll go, I don't know if the best. The best may not be be the right character category, but one of the newest Democratic lawmakers, Richie Torres, uh, who's from mm-hmm. one of the most Democratic districts in the country, in the Bronx. Just got elected in, 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 in next to AOC's district, by the way, and he is a very thoughtful, very uh, inspiring. Uh, has a bio, and he, and he he'll, he's very tall. He's been on our podcast. Uh, I've interviewed him many times on, on the Hill. Um, he's someone who ha- is, is progressive, is, is quite liberal, but just thinks independently, and will have just fascinating kind of discussions about some of the issues we talked about that don't conform all the time with the standard uh, party dogma. Um, so like he's, he's, he's become one of my favorite interviews these days just because he's sort of a breath of fresh air. He's an against the grain voice, if you will, within the democratic party who doesn't, you know, who's as he's also the, I think he's the first Afro Latino member of, uh, New York. There's, there's a lot of like firsts, a lot of like identitarian firsts within his, uh, election, but he also doesn't play, you know, the identity politics card all the time. He, he is someone who, um, is really, um, you know, heterodox in his thinking on a lot of policy issues. What's the best account you follow on Twitter? Huh, that's a, you know, I, I am a prolific, uh, prolific. You're a big tweeter. tweeter. I follow, I, I track your tweets. You, you, you frequently, uh, your morning tweets are great because you kind of mine the news for me. And then I just am able to <laughs> yeah, so look at your me, curated feed. Look, um, yeah. And, and I, I try to, um, let I, I try to, offer like kind of just the hotline on, on Twitter for like just good, interesting nuggets from the world of political news. Um, so you know, two people I like to follow a lot are two election analysts that I, I think have really good track records. My, my colleague, Dave Wasserman at the cook political yeah. report, who's a good friend of mine, but also I just, I'll, I'll retweet him. I'll, I'll generally agree with almost anything he says. I'll, I'll retweet it. Um, Nate Cohn at the New York times. I really like a lot too. Um, he, his tweets are always insightful must follow type stuff so um yeah all right dave and those are great accounts and uh and uh i i I too track them very closely all right who's gonna win the 2022 super bowl uh well i'm a patriots fan so i don't know if that's gonna happen this year though we're we're, mac jones is looking pretty good uh so i can't i can't complain um let's just say the same los angeles rams i I think they 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 just got well, they just made a big trade. They got um, Van, what's his name from the Broncos? Uh, yeah. the you almost did a little wish casting and called them the St. Louis Rams. There, you were channeling your uh, inner St. Louis fan. There. Well, you don't want to. Get, I hate these these franchise moves. Um, I hate the fact that you now have two teams in LA. One which no, there's no fan base for. But um, yeah, I, I, I liked it when the Rams were in St. Louis. But um, yeah. 
But yeah, like I, yeah, I'd say the Rams. The Rams are the favorite. All right, last one. You like me have children. If there is one children's movie that you could punt into the sun and have it incinerated and never have to watch again, what would it be? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's less a movie. What? I, there's so many TV shows. Um, yeah. Okay. We'll make it a TV show too. Like, I mean, from SpongeBob, SquarePants. To, I'm trying to even think. Like, there's so many shows I've never heard of. Number Blocks and um, they, these shows that you know. I, I grew up as a Sesame Street kid and Mr. Rogers. You know, I watched the classics, and now there are just so many shows that, um, like, with uh, Peppa Pig. You know, oh yeah, I could, I could do I, I, in small doses, fine. But like, not when you have the Netflix going nonstop and running episode after episode. Uh, yeah, it's a lot, all the, all those like Netflix kids shows can get a little tiresome. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's rough out there for us. Josh Krauschauer from the National Journal. Thank you. Josh writes the Against the Grain column for National Journal. He has a podcast called Against the Grain. Uh, I would in- highly encourage you to follow him on Twitter and uh, track what he's thinking about because as I opened up the show with, I think Josh is often on the leading edge of what the actual trends are in politics and in industry and in a business where there's a lot of groupthink because no one wants to be an outlier or wants to be wrong. Josh often takes... I think uh, interesting uh, tax in his writing that frequently turn out to be exactly right. I think that was true on Virginia, uh, which is why you should be following him as we head to the 2022 midterms and the 2024 presidential campaign. Josh, you've been a great guest. Thanks for being with us. And uh, please uh, follow us uh, on your favorite podcast feed. Uh, Give us five stars, do the ratings, do the comments. Let us know if you like these kinds of guests, because we're trying to build a nice platform here for people like Josh to come Uh, to a whole audience out here in flyover country. I'm Scott Jennings. Thanks for being with us. Follow me on Twitter at Scott Jennings, KY. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at scottjenningsky on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. 